welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode, we're featuring guitarist Dave Stryker. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. All right. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to episode 38 of High Action. Thank you for joining us. And please say hello to my compatriot, John Story. How you doing, John? Oh, I'm great. How are you doing out there, Perry? Pretty good. Will Brom, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How about yourself? Good. You guys are out in L.A. I'm out in Brooklyn. Weather's beautiful here. I'm sure the weather's beautiful out in L.A. And uh, I actually, you know, had the experience of flying on an airplane for the first time in wow. 14 months last weekend with my guitar, doing the thing that we all used to do just about every weekend. And yeah, it was kind of a trip. You know, the weather was nice in Georgia as well. Uh, and the music was fun. And I was just thinking... God, you know, this feels way too normal, uh, <laughs> to, be, to be honest with you guys. Like, it all just kind of came back so easily, and the experience was really great. Flight attendants were wonderful. I think they're being kind to us now, but we'll see. Maybe in a couple of months, they're going to go back to their usual routine. Which case did you bring? Just brought the mono case. Shout mono? out to mono, you know? Yeah. I feel like even if I have to gate check it, which I didn't happen, but... Um, the guitar nice. is cool in the mono case. And, there we you go. know, story, somebody who's certainly no stranger to uh, traveling as a guitar player is the guest on our podcast today, the wonderful Dave Stryker. Uh, this was such a fun interview, John. I mean, you know, don't you think that Stryker has a pretty good sense of humor? Yeah. And, you know, um, the first time I met him, I saw him at a jazz festival when I was in high school. He was playing the Mount Hood Jazz Festival. And I actually remember what great stage presence he had and that he's just hes just a great guy. He's a fun guy to hang with and to check out. And um, just a, yeah, burning guitar player. I mean, t- one of these guys that right away when we started this podcast, he was one of the first guys like, man, we got to get Dave Stryker on here and interview him. He's so burning. Yeah. Great he- He's a cat for sure. Uh, One of the heaviest cats out there. And, you know, for the listeners, go follow him on Instagram because he's also hysterical. Sometimes he has these photoshopped (laughs) images of New Jersey Governor Chris Christie just sitting in a beach chair. And it like it really brightens up my day whenever I see (laughs) that, you know. and yeah, I'm just uh, want to get into this episode. Um, but before I do, I want to thank everybody who has been tuning in and listening to our podcast. Our numbers are growing all over the world. We're very excited about that. And a special thanks to all of you who are joining us on Patreon. If you're not joining us on Patreon and you're interested in hearing the three of us actually play guitar and talk a little bit about what goes into our daily practicing and the projects that we're doing, go over to Patreon. Uh, the New West Guitar Group, and you can sign up and follow along and support our podcast and connect with the three of us. So, without further ado, let's get into this really fun and informative episode. This is episode 38 with the great Dave Stryker.
There he is. How, what's up, guys? Good to see yeah. you, man. All right. Dave Stryker. Right. Thanks for having me. Man, thank you Yo, so much for dude. being here. You got your mic up and everything. This is great. Yeah, man. I want to just introduce you uh, formally to these other guys. I don't know if you've had the pleasure, but joining us from L.A., we got uh, John Story uh, from Burbank here and uh, Will Brom from North Hollywood. I've heard your uh, group and stuff, and, uh, you know, you guys sound great, man. And I've heard you all play, set, you know, solo, too, so that's been cool. We've kind of been launching this podcast uh, in sort of response to the pandemic and everything we're going through this year, it seemed like a good chance to kind of build some community in the guitar world. And we've been kind of overwhelmed by um, you know, just the amazing guys like yourself that have been willing to come on and talk with us and kind of talk about their careers and share their music. So it's, it's really been fun for us. And, and thanks for making the time for this. Man, that's fine. And I appreciate you, uh, you know, Give, let me have that 175 for it that I could see over there. Yeah, the that was the deal we talked about. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's, I pre that's a nice deal. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Actually, I don't know if you can s You got one back there, too? I know you have a few guitars. See I, it? Want I do see it. I see yeah. a bass. 73. 73, wow. Yeah. 73, yeah. Yeah, nice little antique natural, just like just like mine right here. Yeah, right? I, my, my first guitar was a 175. My first jazz guitar, that is. You know, yeah. my, first, my first guitar was a jazz master. Uh, wow. And uh, little did I know I'd become a jazz master. No. <laughs> now, this, this was... <laughs> you definitely are, my friend. When I, when I had that guitar, I'm not kidding you when I say I had no idea no idea what jazz was it was uh you know i think i was 13 and i was into uh you know i think the first record i bought was cream a cream record called disraeli gears yeah man Clap so you there. know i heard the blues you know i'm from omaha so i heard the blues coming from a guy from london instead of going three hours east i could have gone to chicago and heard uh albert king or somebody yeah. who's you know his his anyway what, That's how it works. What was Omaha like for you coming up as a guitar player? Did you have access to some good teachers? Was there good educators for you at the time? Well, you know, like any town, anywhere any of us grow up, I think there's always going to be, you know, the older guys that you look up to. Um, so when I started, I, was, I had an older sister who was, uh, had all the Beatles records. And so that was kind of my introduction. She was about five years older than me, and so I heard all those 45s and... And I started taking guitar lessons at a young age at 10. And then by 12, I was, when I got into junior high, I was playing with the, the ninth graders. I was in seventh grade. And, and we had a little band, you know. And I remember uh, uh, another, another early record was uh, Jimi Hendrix, you know, Smash Hits. Yeah. And I can remember rehearsing down in the basement of uh, Gary Loft's house in Omaha and his dad yelling down, What are you talking about? kissing some guy you know we were playing the, <laughs> we were playing the, excuse me while i kiss the sky yeah, da, yeah. Da, da. <laughs> yeah. so anyway it was yeah so i was started out you know like everybody playing rock and then hard rock and um i remember i had a teacher early on that, that he the, my very first teacher he wore his watch like this oh i used to wear my watch on the underside like that yeah so like when you're playing it's just you know, for me, that's just, it, it makes the time go by too, way too fast. Yeah. Uh, too slow. Um, but anyway, that was, it was funny. Uh, and, uh, you know, just learning tunes off the radio. 
Um, those first records really hold up, though, right? Hendrix and, and Cream, those are like blues-based rock music. And then I got into like a lot of, you know, other stuff. But then I think maybe like Santana and uh, the Allman Brothers would have been a the the stepping stone into maybe more improvising mm-hmm. and not, you know mm-hmm. kind of stuff like that. So, you know, I got in a band that we were working a lot. Uh, the the drummer's father was a uh, a booking agent in town, so we had gigs all the time playing like sock hop. Well, sock hops. I'm really sounding old now. Um, <laughs> sock hop. I remember I said that once to my son. Like, one, my sons are like 27 and 29 now, but when I was younger, you know, when they were younger, I, they had a, da- a dance at the school and I called it a sock hop and they yeah. thought I was a dinosaur. You know, they just like couldn't believe what had just come out of sock dad's mouth. Yeah. But we played school dances and proms and, you know, the first, the, the prom dance would be Stairway to Heaven. You know, that's the whole, so you're getting the picture of the time. Yeah, yeah, totally. But we were like rebelling at the same time and playing like, we're starting to get into Santana and Caravana Sarai, that record, and like playing all those weird, you know, cool tunes. And um, and then I went to a jam session in Omaha to at a, just to, to let you know the... Um, the time frame, the name of the club was The Generation Gap. <laughs> Isn't that great? So I went to The Generation Gap that had a jam session every Tuesday, and that was my very... Started going there, and I met a local sax player named Bobby Thompson, speaking of, you know, the, lo- the local guys you would meet, and he mm-hmm. heard something, mm-hmm. you know, and so, or at least saw that I was into it. So I went over to his house, and he started showing me. We would write out the chords to Girl From Ipanema and tunes that he would play, like, at the Holiday Inn. And uh, I'll Remember April, uh, Green Dolphin Street, Song From My Father, these kind of tunes. And uh, You started getting into it. You started yeah, getting, and getting learning the, learning, learning that way. And, and then I, uh, went to a, I remember I went to a jam session at the... Uh, at the union and I had a telecaster and I had a long ponytail at that point and I nice. and they were playing a song for my father and I so I you know hey I'm amazing I'm gonna get up and play so yeah you know I I, I get up there and I just started ripping you know my rock and roll licks um yeah. uh over song for my father which we know works just fine yeah of course uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh one of the guys comes up to me and says hey man you can't be playing that rock shit. This is jazz. <laughs> I was like, "What?" <laughs> so I, I I went to the um, I went to the uh, record store, Homer's Records, the next day, and I walked in. I said, "Where's the jazz section? I need to buy some jazz records." And and he pointed back in the back, and I went. And somehow I walked out of there that day with Coltrane, my favorite things, and George Benson, Beyond the Blue Horizon. See, mm-hmm. I love this. I think this is so cool because one of the things we talk a lot about. Uh, on this podcast is this this notion of if you were born at a certain time that you didn't have access to just go on YouTube and figure out everything that the early records you had are so important to you because they're really all the information that you had and right. that they've stuck with you for you all these years later you know uh, I still had some of that I was born in 83 but I still had this experience of you know going to Virgin Records going to Tower Records going to Amoeba Records out in the Bay Area and, and picking up CDs, bringing them home, and how special it was to me at the time. I, I feel like that's a lost thing now, but maybe younger kids will kind of still get that feeling by looking at all the videos and streaming things that they're getting. Maybe it'll still feel as special to them. I don't know, but I love hearing people talk about their access to information before the internet revolution when 
these records were really so special and they had such an imprint on you for yeah all these i mean years. you know we would you would sit around and, and watch the uh or read the the open up like one of those cti records and like Mm-hmm. I can still remember like Harry Lukowski was the violinist on, you know, I, yeah. I, you just memorize all the guys on there. And it's like, he's just some, you know, session. Right. Violin but it was, it was, uh, yeah, they definitely stick with you. And, and those are, those were great times, you know, going through the record store. It sounds uh, like you had got a lot of good experience early on coming up and had some good mentors to show you in the way. Uh, I was curious to ask you about a point in your career. I think this was around 1978, but you moved to Los Angeles. Right. And, and, and Will, I, I, I heard him say that you're from, uh, or you live in uh, North Hollywood. Yes. Yeah. 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 John lives in, North, I mean, uh, Will lives in North Hollywood and John lives in Burbank. I'm originally from the Bay Area, but I lived in Los Angeles for eight years. That's where I met John. We were at USC studying together. Uh, we were studying with great Joe DiOrio. And Will, some years later, was down in uh, Cal State Long Beach studying with Mm -hmm. Ron Eshte. And Uh I was wondering, you know, 1978, you're in L.A. It's a great guitar town. Did you ever come across DiOrio or Ron Eshte uh, while you were there? So, you know, after I got that start in in Omaha, there happened to be a a guitar player that was uh, named Billy Rogers from Omaha, who was, Mm -hmm. uh, I I don't know if you guys ever heard of this guy, but he's... uh, worth checking into he was a phenomenal player he uh was the kind of guy he could play like benson you know when he was 20 but then he when i was hanging with him he had gotten into holdsworth and gong and stuff and so he was putting that in there too but he was a guy that he he had gotten the gig with the crusaders after larry carlton which back in those days was you know like the the big gig you know here you know in la and so he you know, he came back through Omaha, and I met him. And there was another musician that lived in L.A. named John Maller, who was a great pianist and organist. So those guys lived in L.A. And uh, that so when it came time that for me to leave town, which was, uh, you know, I was like I said, I was in that band that was working a lot. Um, and around '78, I, I moved out there, and I mo- I lived in North Hollywood at, first on Whipple. And that was right by Dante's. So yeah. I got to see I got yeah. to see Joe Pass there and Lenny Bro, you know, and uh there and later I moved to Magnolia and Lancashire. Okay. Oh man. Yeah. So, I'm like spitting distance from there. Yeah, right. We're we're all made I live right off Magnolia and Burbank Boulevard. So yeah, I'm right here. Yeah. You know I, I was here I am moving out. I, I literally put all my stuff I had, you know, in my this old uh giant car i had i forget what it was montclair of uh, mercury montclair or something <laughs> drove it drove out there and i and i called you know I, I rolled into uh into north hollywood and i called john mallard i said hey i'm i'm here he let me put, <laughs> he, let me, he let me put my stuff in his place and then uh somehow early early on i ended up getting uh called to sub for an organ trio believe it or not in uh, you know and then i ended up getting uh working at a pier one import store you know to doing you know, what and, you could to stay on yeah, yeah. and played it played in a, a caribbean band but i was i was i did the la scene and uh f- for a couple years i um this guy billy rogers uh i was you know he was lived actually lived with me for a little while and he was that was right when he was in the Crusaders, uh, or kind of leaving the Crusaders. He uh, uh, was on that record called Street Life, and, okay. but he had unfortunately he had a drug problem, and mm. uh, 
and it got the best of him. So in 1987, he uh, overdosed in San oh. Francisco. Oh man! Yeah, but he—if you go—he's worth checking out. I, I posthumously produced a record of him. Okay, uh, that's, a long, that's a whole nother podcast. But yeah, it was—I took tapes, cassette tapes that we found. Uh, you know, his family hired me to do this, and uh, I s- separated his track because he had used a little four track on some of these four, make demos, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I brought in uh, my friends in New York and we played along with it and okay. I couldn't tell. It was It's amazing. Oh, wow. I'd, I'd like to send it to you guys, whatever. So I, would I would totally love to check it out. Yeah, yeah. Billy, Billy Rogers, that's a name that I'm not so familiar with, but I, yeah. I will become familiar. Yeah, with so it. anyway, so so that, but then I, at, at, a, at a certain point I decided to... Um, my another friend of mine that was in that band in Omaha had gone to New York when I went to L.A. Hmm. Yeah, so I said, "Let me go to New York and and uh, and visit." So I we I actually drove from <laughs> L.A. to New York. I've done it. Uh, done it myself. Yeah, stopped in Omaha, but then uh, <laughs> as my story goes on, that's not the last time I did that. Yeah, uh, but I went to go visit New York, and this would have been in, in around eighty, nineteen eighty. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, I had a revelation one night because it was all these clubs were happening. And I'm sitting mm-hmm. in a place called the Tim Palace and George Coleman is playing with uh, Al Foster and Harold Mayburn and Clint Whoa. Houston. And they're burning. And it's like um, it's like two in the morning. And I just said, I should have gone this way instead of L.A. <laughs> I, said, I, I went the wrong direction. That's, a, that's a hard question. I mean, you know. I come up with John in, in L.A., and we would talk about this a lot. You know, should we stay in L.A.? Should we go to New York? You know, it worked out for me to get to New York, but John and Will stayed in L.A., and they've had fantastic careers. So yeah, it kind of just depends on the player and sort of what you're trying to do. And At that time, though, it was, it was a great, you know, a great scene uh, with a lot of sessions and a lot of lofts going on. And uh, it, it was it was a for me because I wanted to play jazz, and, you know, I, I had – there was a place in L.A. called Pippi's, and this is going back to the late uh, 70s, and Henry Franklin would play there, and I got Henry to... Franklin? Yeah, I got to see a lot of people play there. Um, uh, Kirk Lightsey played there, okay. and yeah. Billy Rogers would come and sit in, and also Jimmy Smith's Supper Club was going, and that was amazing. Every Monday night, they had a, a jam session. I was there every Monday night, and, uh, you know, I'm getting here I am getting to play with... Uh, with Jimmy Smith and uh, wow, all these cats, and I met. That's where I met Jack McDuff. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. It, that was yeah. one of your first uh, touring gigs, or at least uh, one of your major gigs, was working with Jack McDuff for a couple of years, right? Yes, it was. Yeah. And did that sort of help bridge the gap to New York for you? Well, he had told me when I was uh, when when I'm you know he probably said this to everybody. But he says you know hey you know man you sound good if you ever come to New York come look me up. So when I came, and, and after I had done that visit, I drove back to L.A. again and uh, worked a, with a funk band that summer to save some money up, got all my stuff, and then I made the move to, to New York in the end of 1980. And went up to Harlem, man. I just, he was playing at the, um, the Lickety Split Lounge. Yeah, I, I've heard and, of that. Yeah, yeah. I, went, I went in there and, uh, and I played and sat in with him. And I remember he did uh, "You Are the Sunshine of My Life," swinging it. Nice. Yeah. And anyway, he. Uh, so I ended up uh, not right away getting the gig because he had a, he, he at that point he had an b- electric bass player in the band, but 
the all, an interesting side story is that Steve Slagle was the saxophonist at that time, and we oh, okay. ended up playing together quite a bit. Yeah, that's for, right. For years. So he, then all of a sudden, this is go to flash forward to about 1984. I, it's January 1st, 1984. I get a, a call. Striker, McDuff, what are you doing the next two months? <laughs> and it, of course, like when you're in your early 20s, you're like, nothing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like, so yeah, so I went up to Harlem and, uh, you know, it was incredible. It was an incredible experience. It was, you know, the the real meaning of paying your dues. I mean, we 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 drove, uh, the, the first gig, you know, he, he had was... Uh, in Philly, and the second gig he had was at Marla's Memory Lane in L.A. Wow. So in, like, February, we headed out in this van that he he had a 14-foot box van. Okay. And, you know, the you, you, we'll meet up in Harlem, you know, and uh, we get in, he goes, yeah, I got to get one of these tires checked. You know, it's like, hey, man, couldn't, you know, couldn't you have done that, like, <laughs> earlier today? It's, like, 2 in the morning. Yeah. You know, go cross the George Washington Bridge. It's, I can't, man. It's, that's it's, a whole other podcast. It's, it's, <laughs> I, could, I could write a book about all the stories. Oh, it was, my God. It was insane. Yeah. But it was, it was, there was nothing like it. So we, you know, the truck breaks down in Philly. And so we have to, we're all crowded into a, a motel room while they're working on the truck. And finally, we get it, go, <clears throat> get it going and drive straight through. Philly wow. to L.A. Straight through. Get there to Marla's Memory Lane at, uh, we're supposed to start at 9 and get roll in at about 10. And <laughs> you know, the place is packed, you know, a lot of black folks all dressed up nice. And here we are pushing the Leslie and everything through oh, the crowd. And set up and play. This is my very first gig, you know. <laughs> and so he takes my little polytone and sets it on his Leslie, like this far from his ear. Oh, my God. <laughs> And, and, you know, I'm a little nervous, but I, you know, I mean, I had been listening to Stanley Turrentine CTI records and, you know, I yeah. listened to the, I love the music. I've been, I feel like I was, you know, ready for the gig and, uh, he must've heard something. So he, uh, but I mean, as guitar players, come on, you know, I mean, I was going to ask you, Benson, Grant you Green, know, yeah. George Benson, Pat Martino. Billy Rogers, the guy I mentioned, he played yeah. with him. So, you know, Jack told me when, when I got when I finally joined the band, he said, I finally got a good guitar player. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Can you I get a rim shot here somewhere? Yeah. Some, someone. Put him ching. So you weren't intimidated. You you felt prepared. You felt like you were in the right spot on the right gig, that you had the tools and you heard the you heard what you needed to hear to get through the gig and everything. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, as far as you know, soloing, you, you know, you had to, you know, have it play with a good feel. You had to have a good feel. That's the first thing. I, you know, when and I, that's what I tell my students now. You know, the big three is your sound, your time, or your feel, and then the harmony. Yeah. Because the first thing people hear is your sound. Mm -hmm. That you know that don't know anything about music. So you, you know, you, whether you're a saxophonist and you know Stanley Turrentine used to say his father made him play long tones in the corner of the basement for hours um, as guitar players we're, we're always trying to get a good sound you yeah. know obsessing yeah. and it's it's a challenge i mean i mean we're well aware of uh one of the biggest things that changes your tone is the volume at which you're playing um and the you know the guitar depending on the guitar it responds differently uh, if you're playing a big box it's you know it's a very different tone when you're playing quiet than when you're playing loud and there's just all yeah. these different kind of variables you have to deal with as a guitar player to kind of dial in your tone 
I remember I had a Johnny Smith one at one point uh, that I w- really wish I would have never sold. Let's not talk about it, but uh, <laughs> it had that was one of those guitars where you know you'd be playing and, and like like a say an A or a B flat on the it, every time you hit it, it was you know was yeah. So it was that floating pickup thing, but uh, well, you yes. know, one of the things I was going to say, one of the things that I've admired about your playing for a long time, um, it is your sound, and you seem to hone it on on one guitar particularly for over a lot of years. And I was really kind of curious to ask you about the Gibson three forty seven S. Yeah, I don't, I don't know a lot of other cats that play that guitar, but it sounds great. I mean, what I what I hear that you get out of that guitar is this nice kind of warm 335 quality, but with something that's a little bit more punchy and almost acoustic sounding. So yeah, there, there it is. It looks great. And yeah, I like man. your, your, your tailpiece there. That's interesting. Such Smoking. an acoustic sound, man. That's a great guitar. Beautiful. Yeah. So how did you stumble across that instrument? Where, how did that come into your life? So this is uh, it's similar to 335. It's got an ebony fingerboard. It's got uh, gold hardware that's all worn off now. And it's um, the neck might be a little different. Uh, the um, pickups are called Dirty Fingers, uh, which and they're super hot. So... It's like if you play this a chord on a through a small Fender amp with this thing, it you know it sounds like Eddie Van Halen. Forget <laughs> it's, it's, but if you have the right, like if if you have a polytone or I got a, a I use a Fuchs now, or you have you know I I, I record with like a Fender with four tens. Uh, okay, Blues Deville. So yeah, you want plenty of headroom when you're playing that guitar. Yeah, and and it, but it has a certain punch to it that 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 is uh, that was attractive to me. And yeah. all, this is a, this is a split coil pickup. Uh, okay. Thing. So you have. Do you find that you use it a lot? The split coil. I, use, I do use this um, uh, for for comping. It's nice. It thins it out. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you want to play lines, you you know you got the, a little beefier sound. Yeah. The um, this everybody asks about this. Um, right. This, because the originals had like a micro tuning thing yes, on them, which was, uh, as we know, is just absolutely essential for it to have on your guitar, right? You yeah, really you got to I mean, come on. <laughs> you use it all the time. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, can we just take those out immediately? So I took those out, and then uh, it was just you know gold. But I rest. Uh, I have bad technique, so I kind of rest my my uh, hand right here. And I wore all the gold off, and then I started to get like a rash, you know, like oh I, yeah yeah. Where, so I just had my guitar guy put a uh, this kind of like um, plexiglass. Yeah. 
And, well, and so that's that's the story of that. Um, it's just a cover. And um, it sounds great. It's a really killing guitar, man. I mean, I, I have, uh, like all of us, I have a bunch of guitars. Sure. Yeah, but, but this one, like you said, I mean, the most important thing we can, or, the, you know, our goal, I think, is to, is to have our own sound. And so when I started uh, with, when I was with Jack and, and par, part of the way with Stanley Turrentine, I was playing an L5, which I still have. But um, when I when I finally got a record uh, deal um, in like the early uh, like about eighty nine or eighty eight or somewhere in there, I I said I want to um, I want to try to get my own sound. I mean I, I love the sound of uh, and I like I just we're talking about I have a one seventy five I have a whole bunch of guitars and uh, I love the sound of that you know that jazz sound but something about this guitar kind of seem to have uh give me my own thing plus you know like when you play a chord you know uh you know it, it rings longer because mm -hmm. it's it's semi-hollow it can also help kind of cut a little bit more you know like when you find yourself playing with groups that are really digging in organ trios things like yeah. that Sure. It can kind of help cut sometimes a little bit better a semi-hollow with that sustain and, and just that thickness of the tone. Um, yeah, yeah, it definitely does that. But, you know, I still, like recently, I bought, right before all this pandemic stuff hit it, I, I bought this 1956 uh, yeah. uh, 125. Oh, yeah, yes. what, with, with P90s? Yeah. Yeah, those are cool and, guitars. And it's... Uh, Oh, there you go. Yeah, Just I want to see that thing. Yeah, let's go grab one up. here. And these things, these got it. This thing has a sweet tone. It's, mm -hmm. it's got, uh, it's got a. Um, <laughs> nice. Also, oh, you're getting, you're getting the the pickup too here from the yeah. Mic. Yeah, it sounds cool. Yeah, so this one has been my... I've been, you know, putting uh, one song... Uh, like one song a week I've been putting, uh, recording solo guitar just yeah. to, since this all started, since yeah. I can't play, play too much anymore. That's yeah. been a lot of fun. You know, it's been, I guess, you know, one thing... That's one thing we can do in these times is, is work on our solo guitar playing. Right? Absolutely, which is, you know, it's a very difficult thing to do on guitar, at least to get comfortable with. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about another gig that you had your, your tenure with Stanley Turrington. I know that was after Macduff. And I'm, I'm really curious, kind of rewinding to this point in your career, um, you'd obviously been establishing yourself with, with Macduff and getting here in New York, and then you start playing with Stanley Turrentine. That must have been a really good time for you, I imagine, in New York, having a great gig with someone like Stanley Turrentine. It must have helped raise your profile in New York. Did you feel like you were really solidly in the scene at that point? Well, you guys could imagine as guitar players, you know. I mean, I, I feel so lucky that and so fortunate that I got the experience not of playing with guys like McDuff. Well, you know, the guys in my hometown that, you know, got me started. And then, you know, guys like Jack McDuff. Um, you know, having to play a gig like that, you... The, you know, this, plus the the thing with Jack is I should mention is that Joe Dukes was the drummer, and Joe okay. Dukes is like the the one of the best all time organ drummers. Those two guys together was like this. But Joe had a terrible drinking problem and had been out of the band for years, 
but when I came in, uh, Jack had brought him back. So, man, you know, it was we had a steady four night a week of gig up in Harlem, uh, at a place called Dude's Lounge, and uh, we would play every if we weren't on the road, we would play every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday from ten to four in the morning. Oh man, that's an education right there. You know? Build the rapport that way. Yeah, that's a that's a <laughs> that's a real and, degree right there. And we and we would. Uh, <laughs> We would uh, all the cats, you know. I'm the, one of the first nights there. I'm 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 playing. And I look out and and like ten feet away, there's George Benson sitting there. And I just remember saying a prayer and saying, "If I get through this night, I'll be good the rest of my life." God, right. <laughs> you know? so you know what I mean. It's like after you've had to play in front of George, bring anybody else on. You know, uh, to yeah. me, he's the world champ. That kind of experience is just incredible. But other guys, you know, Lonnie, Dr. Lonnie, I, I was playing with him a little bit. He would come through, Lou Donaldson, um, and a lot of local cats would just come hang out. And this, and uh, what about Stanley, Stanley Turrington? How did that yeah. kind of come well, he, together? He, that's where he first heard me in, okay. uh, with, with Jack. And a friend of mine, Greg Scaff, was playing with him at that time. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, good player. And he had uh, started doing some other gigs, and I w- sent me as a sub. I remember Stanley had this manager, Richard Carpenter, who was like, he looked, he was like the Luca Brasi of jazz, you know, he was like, this is this, this wide. <laughs> and you would get paid in these little um, manila envelopes, like this big, you know, with, your, with cash, always cash. All, all, yeah, and, yeah. and it wasn't very much. Uh, yeah. But anyway, the. That's another gig, you know. I had been listening into Stanley Turrentine for since I started, so I, when I got the call to do the gig, I knew that book. You know, I knew every tune. I was like, and I was just like laying for it because I had played with Jack already. I'd been around New York and started doing my own stuff, and like the second the second gig I subbed on, you know, the manager came up and goes, "Stanley wants to start using you." On, and I'm like, okay. So that was a little touchy with Greg for a minute there, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he, we're still great friends. Uh, you know, that's what happens if you uh, get back then, like on a gig like that. If you are not, if you're not there, they want you all the time. You know, that right. still goes. Right. That still happens yeah. if you start subbing out. You're taking a chance of losing the gig. But it was yeah. that was another uh, incredible experience. I and mean, being both Jack and him, it really, you know, you're usually going to be the second soloist. Right. So you're shit, you can't be sad, you know. You if you you got to be able to deal, right? Right. Right. You, right, you got to be right. able to like play with some feeling first off, and have good time, and you know, and and be swinging, but also be able to play like you know with with uh, Jack. He would play all kinds of standards and stuff. You know, you had to be able to to deal. So yeah, I was. I felt like, you know, when I when I finally got that chance to do it, I was I was, I'd kind of been waiting for something like that and I but I do feel super grateful that I got to have that experience of playing with some of those guys uh while they were still here and and I guess I'm trying to now that I'm teaching more um of the last few years um I feel like I want to try to pass on some of that uh experience that I got and in in any way I can to younger players try to learn the music that's beautiful and and Today's podcast is brought to you by Marchione Guitars, handcrafted instruments made by luthier extraordinaire Stephen Marchione. I have two of his guitars. I have the 59 Semi Hollow, and I have the 
OM Acoustic. They play amazing. They sound like nothing else. Completely resonant across the whole body. Uh, wide frets, just so many overtones, so much beautiful sound coming out of these instruments. All made personally by Stephen by hand. Check them out at MarchioneGuitars.com. You know, one of the things you've been able to do throughout your career is record a lot of albums, which I think is, is really a wonderful feat to accomplish. I was kind of looking through your discography, and it's I think it's around 30 albums, maybe as a leader, maybe even more or something. But uh, it's, it's really impressive, and I wanted to ask you about sort of how you think about making albums now. It's, it's really different than what it was in the 90s, just financially and everything. So it's still yeah. really important, in my opinion, to make a great album. It's sort of like the pinnacle of the artistic statement. A lot right. of people focus on their Instagram channels, their YouTube channels, whatever. That's <laughs> all really important. But I still think the album reigns supreme for me. You know, like yeah. the ultimate goal is to make our own version of Kind of Blue, whatever your, you know, whatever your greatest album is. And uh, what's it like for you now making albums? How do you, do you think of it differently? Do you try to make the process quicker? How do you kind of justify putting out uh, so much great music? Well, first off, I just want to say to you guys, and um, if you really, and I tell my students this too, if you if you you practice hard and you pay your dues and you keep at it and keep practicing and keep working at it, you know, eventually you can make hundreds in this business. And you know, <laughs> that's so um, so inspiring. Yeah. Before taxes, yeah. before uh, you know, in fact, I'm a hundred air. Yeah. Me too. Seriously. Um, so I, it's a little different now. Um, gosh, it's, it's really different now. Uh, yeah. The, the way the record business if, has changed. But back when I started, uh, my, I, I guess my very first recording was in New York. Um, and I did a, I had gotten an NEA grant to do a, performance thing or something and so i had a little bit of money and i called uh somehow i got ron mcclure and billy hart and this mark uh copeland on piano and we went in the studio and uh and i made my first record and i had all these cassettes and i sent them to everybody and zilch you know nothing and i have been playing around new york a bit you know so and i had been playing with stanley so then i went to um Japan with Stanley, I think, and there was a guy there uh, named um, Mr. Mo Mori who had a club called Someday, and I went, after our gig, I got in a taxi and went to his place and um, gave him that cassette, and he wanted to put it out. Uh, he liked it. Uh, that ended up being my record called First Strike. Uh, get it? Yeah, nice. Yeah. So, uh yeah. Then you know the next record was <clears throat> when I got then I got I, I I had sent it to Steeplechase, which is his Danish label, and I didn't hear back. But when I got back from the the tour, uh, he said, I, all of a sudden here I got a, a letter from Steeplechase saying uh, I like that record. You know, let's put it out. And I had I was able to say, sorry, it's already sold. Let's do another one. Okay. So so we did another one, uh, and of course that one was called Strike Zone. Nice. And then I did leave the uh, baseball metaphors alone for about twenty years. <laughs> but but we we did have uh, you know 
later on we did have there was quite a few strikes this strike that and we yeah. had a strike up the band yeah you got to do that blue strike uh <laughs> you know every you know whatever so uh yeah but anyway it what it worked out as is um with steeplechase uh you know it wasn't a, a big label at that time there was you know certainly bigger labor labels blue note and these kind of labels but it was a chance for me he would do like one a year so i did about 20 for him you know one every year yeah. and it was, it was amazing to have that opportunity to write music you know i always liked writing my own stuff and you know i i was also able to um to do uh, all kinds of different projects from big band to organ trio. I did an organ trio with Joey D. Francesco, a young Joey and a young Larry Goldings. Cause I had stopped doing that organ thing for, for years. Cause I okay. got a little burn on it, you know? Okay. Uh, but I, then, then in the last 10 years, I met this guy, Jared Gold at a, yeah. was a up here in West Orange called Cecil's. And I know was, Jared. And, cool cat. Yeah. And so he's, uh, he's just amazing. So, We've had a trio for a while, and it's, you know, organ trio, as you all know, it's just there's nothing like it for a guitar player. It's it's, the it's great, true. It, it really is a great a big sound with three people. It's a great setting, yeah. And uh, I want to dive into your album. You did an album with Jared called Eight Track. I want to uh, talk about Volume Three in a second, but before that, I wanted to play your most recent release, an album called Blue Soul, which is uh, with Bob Minster and the W. DR Big Band. Uh, would you mind if we played a little snippet of one of the tracks off of this album? It's really great. Thanks. Yeah, sure. Uh, okay, this is Blues Strut here from Dave Stryker. Let's take a listen to this. That's how you do it, man. That's how you do it. So, you know, one thing that McDuff said, uh, one of the first things he said when we were playing, he goes, he said, Stryker, if you look out in the audience and people ain't doing this when you're playing, you ain't doing your job. 
You know, because we would play, we would play the, you know, this is the end of the the Chitlin circuit, man. And we would play uh, these joints, man, in uh, Gary, Indiana, or Champaign, Illinois. Uh, And, you know, it was, it had to be grooving. So, you know, I I caught myself nodding my head a little bit on there, you know, even though, you know, it's hard to listen to yourself, but that was, this, this last project was, was really a, uh, a dream for me, a bucket list, whatever they call it now. But uh, Bob, had, Bob Mincer, I've known since I've been in New York, and you know, you guys know about him, obviously. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Was he there when you were there? He was not. I mean, we. I, I graduated in 2005. I think he came in in like maybe 08 or 09, something like yeah. that. John, right? Yes, that's right. 2009. Yeah. yeah. But you, you know, we all know about him. Sure. Bad caddy is, and uh, so he he had been. Uh, 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 you know, with he, he had been a guest on some tour, uh, little tours and some festivals and stuff with my trio, mm-hmm. uh, which is Jared Gold and McClenny Hunter on drums. Mm-hmm. And um, he had, th- we, I had done this eight track project, and he had, uh, you know, of course he knows those tunes, and he thought he's also the uh, chief conductor now of the WDR big band in Cologne, Germany, which is a full time studio orchestra big band that these guys show up to work every day and you know, who are we doing this week? You know, like Joe Lovano or, you know, somebody is, uh, they bring every, all these different people in and, and they do projects and they record it. And then they, uh, they play it over the air. And, uh, in Germany like this, you pay a little bit of tax towards this, you know, maybe you pay $8 a year towards this, uh, entertainment tax. And this, you know, finances this big band. So, uh, you know, Bob had thought that this would, uh, the, the, that music, um, that's kind of soul angle with the eight track stuff would be a good, a good fit for something he could do with the, you know, with the big band. So he made it happen and, and well, they brought me over there. It sounds great. The record's called Blue Soul. Uh, it's, it's the most recent release here from Dave Stryker. It's just a wonderful album. So I encourage everybody to go out and listen to it and check it out. Uh, before I pass it off to John's story, I know he had some questions for you. I, I wanted to ask you about uh, one of my favorite guitar players, uh, someone that you were really close with, someone that I got to kind of know towards the end of his life, unfortunately. But I'm talking about the great Vic Juris. I know you had a, a good connection and a good relationship with Vic. Um, it was really sad to see him obviously battle with what he was dealing with uh, toward the yeah. end. but. I I thought he was one of the most gracious and and loving guitar players out there yeah. on the scene. That you got the picture of him on the cover of Jersey got, yeah, Jersey Jazz. This in the mail today. And cool. you were really close with him, and I just wanted to tell you how much uh, you know he meant to me. I didn't know him a, a, a ton, but I got to know him kind of like toward the end for him. And there's this great story I like to share with you, where I was at the 55 bar getting ready for a gig, and he had played uh, the set before. And I'm looking over this guy's music and like trying to get some of it down and just playing like acoustically. And all of a sudden, there's this little voice right over my shoulder. <laughs> and he's like, it doesn't look so bad. You'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, I turned my head over and there's Vic Juris. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, and we had a little chat and I just thought he was the sweetest guy. He, he was always like in support of the New West Guitar Group and what we were doing and um, I just wanted to let you know that it was kind of great to see that you were 
you know, connected to him and had a friendship with him. And if you had any good Vic stories, I'd love to love to hear a few. Well, um, you know, I I've, I've been out here. I, I moved from Brooklyn out here uh, 27 years ago, and when my kids were little kids, very little, and it was time to you know try to get a house so we, get, we you know you could afford a house out here back then, and I had uh, heard of Vic, you know. In fact, you know, the kind of, you mentioned the kind of guy is I remember uh, I had that very first, one of those very first records of uh, Steeplechase records. I got a call one day and I didn't hardly even know the guy, but I just, he just called, called me and, and complimented me on the record, oh, cool. which was, you know, this is a cool thing to do. And then later, I think I was subbing in this uh, Five Guitars Play Mingus that uh, Jack Wilkins and Vic and all these cats did. Um, and so I'd gone over to his apartment and picked up some music to look at it. And then he, uh, he called me one day and said that he was looking for a place. And the place across the street from me uh, was up. Um, okay. For, uh, to, and so he ended up buying the house across the street from me. And uh, I always, on. you know, what I said at the, I've always said it. And I told it to him and he would get this little laugh on his face. But I would, you would think when you move out to New Jersey, you'd be the best guitar player on your block. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, that wasn't, back. yeah, it wasn't, you couldn't say that necessarily. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's yeah, great. So we came, we came even very close, you know, when he got ill, I really yeah. tried to be, be a be a friend for him then and, uh, got very close then in that last uh, six months. And, um, you know, as guitar players, he was just something else. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, just, just, like, just a, <laughs> he, I now, you know, at the time, uh, you know, we all, everybody has their own sound and their own kind of thing they do. And they, you know, no one sounds better than you at what you do, but he, you know, listening back to it now, he, he really was something. And I, yeah. I mean, it's just great, great player. And, and a, and a fun guy, you know, we, we had a lot, of, we had a lot of laughs and, uh, I was so impressed by his playing all the time, his, his beautiful phrasing, but also just by his uh, generosity to younger cats and his encouragement to younger cats. You know, it's not as common out in New York. Uh, I experienced that a lot out in L.A. where the older generation of cats was very, like, patient with the younger guys and stuff. And when I came out to New York, it's like, okay, maybe you don't get quite as much of that. But he was always delivering that. He was always kind of trying to be supportive to every guitar player he was hearing, pretty much. And I thought that was a very kind of, you know, non-ego way of looking at your life and and uh i always respected that about him quite a bit yeah yeah he uh he definitely had a lot of taught a lot of cats too he uh yeah i in fact i i've uh taken over for, he asked me to take over for him at rutgers so i'm now mm -hmm. oh okay the, i'm now the uh guitar professor there Excellent. Well, yeah. let me take this opportunity just to pass it over to John's story. I know he wants to jump in and uh, talk to you and ask you some questions about some stuff. So, John, go ahead. Yeah, great to see you, Dave, man. I, um, I, if you may, I don't think you'll remember this, but we met at the Mount Hood Jazz Festival in probably year 2000 in Portland. You were playing with a trio. I can't remember if it was with Scott Colley, but you were promoting All the Way, which was a record oh. that had come out on Steeplechase around that time. This would have been probably, what, year 2000, somewhere in there, I think. Um. So anyway, it was great because I walked right up to the stage. You got done playing your set, 
And I was like, man, you sound so great. I'm a guitar player. And you were like, yeah, man, come around and we'll talk. And they had kind of a little fence set up where you like, you couldn't get in without the badge or whatever. And you chatted with me for a while. And I told you how I'd listened to you on the tribute to Grant Green record on that take on Jean de Fleur that was so burning. And I just, I just want to say, man, I so appreciate you taking the time. I was 16. I was a young guitar player. I was geeking out about jazz guitar. And I could tell you really wanted to take the time to talk to me. And uh, man, it just, it just meant a lot. And I've been a huge fan of your playing. And I know we've been in touch off and on over the years. Like when you came out to the bakery to play, I think we were in touch about a lesson, but it didn't happen for one reason or another. But it's just great to have you on high action and dig in a little bit more into your playing. Um, the question I wanted to ask, really, I mean, Perry touched base on a lot of things I actually wanted to, to talk about, which is great. But, um, you know, it sounds like early on in your career, you had a concept for your sound, maybe, and it was coming from playing in Jack's band and just that really clear, beautiful, direct sound. I kind of think of it as like the sound that Grant had, but even more evenness and octane to it there's just like a there's a smoothness to your tone and it just continues to get refined because i've heard a lot of your later recordings and checked out a lot of everything that you're doing is that something that you um encourage your students who you're teaching at Rutgers or or, or bloomington i assume you're you're still in indiana so i'm not not sure but um is that something that you instill in your students to follow these instincts that they have when they're in their 20s about what they want their sound to be because it just sounds to me like you're someone that's really taken what you wanted to do early on and really run with that for a long time. Well, let me just say, uh, can we do this again next week, man? I mean, this yeah. is get, I'm not used to getting these kind of compliments, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I haven't even gotten into the off the record, all the great Chris Christie memes that you make. Uh, we'll, we'll, oh, yeah, that's right. That's the best. The, hey, the Chris, beach come chair. Here. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I was expecting you to show up with a Chris Christie doll right here and have him do the interview, man. <laughs> Oh, you got it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there we Chris go. Christy bobblehead. Uh, so, anyway, um, yeah, man. No, th thank, thank you for those very nice words. And I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I try to, I try to, uh, you know, like when you said I met you in, at uh, at Mount Hood and stuff. You know, I, I, I would hope that I would do that. I would hope that other people do that. You never know. You know, sometimes uh, I, you got to just try to. Music or non-music, you know, it's important just to be a good person, right? Uh, and there's there's so much negativity in the in the world right now. Um, you know, we don't even need to get into that. But it's, I think, with music, uh, we just this is a positive thing, a positive force. So, if you meet a younger musician, or you know, uh, go out of your way to, you know, re remember what you were like at that age, um, and the. Um, you know, I said earlier on, you know, sound is number one and, you know, feel is number two and then harmony. And too, too much time, I think some people skip over those first two too much and mm -hmm. get into the harmony thing, which is, and I hear some amazing stuff, but, you know, you're, you're not going to, unless it's coming from here and, and, and your feel is good, uh, I don't, I think you're going to be missing a, that that foundation and uh so for me it was listening to the records like i i did not uh i didn't really go to music school i went i got lucky and got to play with guys like jack mcduff on the road and that that turned out being my school but um the the sound thing you know i i just 
you mentioned Grant Green, that, that record I ended up producing, you know, several years ago, uh, tribute to Grant Green. Um, here's a guy that was uh, just, uh, you know, he didn't play complicated, but it was for, but for me, it was, uh, it, he really showed me how to play, you know, by listening to those early Grant Green records when I was just starting out, like, you know, I would hear like a, you know, a, uh, hear him play on like a, uh, and I'd be like, what is that? You know, you know, he, and I'd yeah, say, oh, yeah. that's like C minor. He's playing a C minor on an F7. Uh, or, you know, he's playing on a... And I, that's how I learned how to play. I was like, oh, shit, that sounds really good. And then, of course, Wes Montgomery, Pat Martino, you start to see how these cats are playing and yeah. and, and cop some solos. And then you, you, know, you don't want to play the verbatim solo, but you some of that might kind of just seep right. in. But yeah, the, and yeah, exactly. The feel thing, the feel thing is, is, is hard to teach, as you guys know. Uh, and so that's why I make them, I mean, if you, if you listen to those records with Grant Green and Larry Young and Elvin, uh, and, and if you ain't feeling that, you know, then I'm not saying that Grant, you know, everybody has to be a Grant Green, you know, fanatic, but um, I don't know. It just, for me, uh, I, I like his feel and Wes, those guys like that, Kenny Burrell, Jim Hall, all the, all the greats, but it, um, it's from listening to the records, how, how I, how I, how I learned and how, when I teach now, I make them, I make the students do the same thing. That's yeah. Right. And for guys of, I uh, guess of our generation who are just maybe a, one or two younger, um, than you guys, it's, it's so inspiring to see how you've just continued to stick with that and really go deep with that and continue to record like this, continue to refine that sound. Um, and yeah, it's just super inspirational and I love your tone. And, but I guess before I pass it to Will too, just another guitar question, I, I've seen a lot of those pictures of you in the 80s playing your L5. Mm-hmm. And then I've, of course, uh, all recently seen the 345. I know you had a 350 for a while too, right? And I'm just curious, did playing in the organ trio really make you think like, man, I need to be playing a semi so that I get a little, I can cut a little bit more. Because I'm an L5 guy too, and I love playing in the organ trios with it, but you have to just have the right setup, or otherwise it's so hard. Yeah, I haven't, yeah I haven't had a... It hasn't been so much that uh, that I that I use the instrument um, because of that worry of, of I haven't had that much problem. If, you know, I've 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 played with the the three fifty. I've played with the L five in organ groups. The only problem I ever had was with the floating pickup, like that Johnny Smith. Uh, I do also want to mention recently I've been playing Benedetto's. Uh, Benedetto has yeah, made yeah. some great guitars. I've got their. Uh, uh, GA thirty five, which is uh, their their semi hollow, and I also have a Bravo, and those those I, I like those a lot. But as you know, we you know we can only play one at a time, so I do I do like to play those. But um, the I think it has more to do with the fact that for one thing, I've, I just started. I've been playing that three forty seven for uh, for so long that it, it's got the mojo, you know, like yeah, yeah, like, yeah. you know, I know that. Uh, Perry, you're probably the same with your 175 yeah, and yeah. with your 5. And I will. I don't know what you're playing right now, but what are you playing? Uh, well, 
This, he's the got flying a, G. He's not got in a, my immediate. Uh, in my immediate. But you know, th- I play a three thirty five probably the most. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it wasn't no to to answer that question. It really wasn't about uh, trying to, to. It was more about trying to have a my, my own sound, and then then I got so used to that guitar that it it uh, it seems like it's part of me now. Yeah. I don't know if I answered your question about the, the you asked me about the record the records too, and I was just very lucky again in that uh, Nils Winter at Steeplechase uh, liked what he heard, thought I had something different, and allowed me to record and and do all these different projects. And that was always uh, kind of what I did. I was I would be on the road sometimes with Jack, with uh, Stanley Turrentine from like uh, I guess I got with him in around eighty six to ninety six something like that. And but but when I was it wasn't like f- constant t- road touring or anything. It was it was in and out. And I I was in New York and and I would uh, have different projects I could do. And what I would do is make a record. And then when that record came out, I would try to get gigs around it, you know, like, yep. okay, here's my new record, and, you know, we're going to play at Visiones or wherever we got a gig. Yeah. Uh, just like you guys are probably do the yeah. same thing. And, but then we saw what happened that, that you know, the, the, the re- it's all changed now with, uh, with people not buying records anymore. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's, we probably have seen the end of this, like, Blue Soul is, you know, it came out on CD, and uh, but it's also I, I, I kind of resisted putting everything on Spotify um, till recently. But my my younger said, son said, "Look, everybody, that's how everybody listens to music, man." So, yeah, yeah. You know, you, got, uh, you know. Obviously, I didn't put them out of business by holding my my stuff. Well, I tried. I I, I, uh, <laughs> I I paid the twelve ninety nine at Borders Books and Music in Beaverton, Oregon, for your Steeplechase Records, Dave. So I, that was what I did with <laughs> my sense. lawnmower money. I was right mowing. On. I was mowing lawns when I was fifteen. Yeah, and yeah. I had to mow a lot of lawns to buy CDs. So thanks, thanks again, man. And I know Will's got some questions. It's just this is so fun to get to hang and and chill like this, man. Appreciate it, dude. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, Dave. Wow, this is what a cool interview, man. I mean, it's so nice talking to to someone who has so much experience like on the road you know like i'm sure you'd agree and the type of invaluable experience of of gaining a deeper connection to music in general on the road that that you don't necessarily gain if you're only at home or if you're only playing Mm -hmm. gigs Mm -hmm. in your local scene um and kind of going further than that like with all the teaching you do what are some patterns you see with younger students, maybe positive, maybe negative that, that you're aware of and, and that, you know, that you've, that you've seen over the years? Um, so I, you know, I had, uh, when I was first learning how to play, uh, jazz in in those early years, I told you about, uh, we went down to, uh, Wichita, Kansas and, uh, to a Jamie Abersall workshop, like one Mm. of the, the older trumpet player knew about this thing and like, Hey man, I'm going to go to that. That sounds cool. So we drove down to Wichita, Kansas and, uh, Jerry Hahn was the guitar guy there and Jack Peterson, both those guys. were nice. there. Wow. And yeah. so, uh, you know, I went and that's the first time I heard of a two, five, one. Um, and then, uh, the next year I went again and, uh, I think like the first year it was Thad Jones was there and, Woody Shaw, and then the next year, uh, Joe Henderson was there, and uh, I got to be in his combo. So that was 
That was a trip. Oh. And there's there's a lot of stories. That's another podcast. But uh, needless to say, we had, there's some there's some great stories there with with Joe, and uh, so. Um, you know, that would be my first kind of formal uh, taking a class, teaching, mm-hmm. learning jazz. And uh, I can remember buying uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Grant Green, they, uh, from Jamie there. They had they, they nice. would sell LPs. And hearing uh, Smoking at the Half Note. Um, and so years later, you know, Jamie kind of followed my career. And when we would come through Louisville, he would, you know, get me gigs at the Louis, wherever the jazz club was there. And then later he asked me to uh, start teaching at the yeah. workshop. And in the meantime, I had been doing some private teaching where, you know, somebody come in and say, hey, um, how do you play on uh, on uh, I Remember You? And I would say, well, why don't you try this? And I would write out a little, you know, etude type solo mm. or something. And then I would make a co- give him a copy and make a copy for me, and, and then I'd throw it in a pile over here. And anyway, eventually I had like this... I put this book out, and Mel Bay ended up putting it out, and then that's that lead. Right. That's kind of how I got into the education thing, and then some of the people that I met at those teaching at those Abersol workshop, which are the, uh, they're all great players, and a lot of them are in the in the programs uh, uh, throughout the country. Uh, they asked me to, to come uh, to teach at Indiana University. And uh, and, Dave, and David Baker was a big part from the very beginning uh, when I was in Wichita. I had met David Baker, and a very inspiring guy, and really uh, in my corner from the from the beginning till the end. And I remember going, uh, thinking to myself, "You want me to fly, fly out to Indiana to teach? You know, you're kidding, right? This is like ridiculous." But so I said, like we always do, you, you at least got to go check it out. Right. You know, if you get an opportunity, don't mm-hmm. just say no, mm-hmm. go for it. And what's the worst that can happen? You just say no. So I went out there and, and uh, I guess, you know, the fact that, that if, you, if you have that experience, people see some value in that, even though you might not have a doctorate or, a, you know, master's degree in music, you might have something to offer because of your experience. And they saw that in me, I guess. But I, I, I'll never forget this walking into, you know, to, to sign, to, you know, say, I'm just going to do this. We go into David's office and all the, all the faculty are there. And I'm, you know, and David, he was, you know, just, I found out later, he said, that's, that's who I want, you know, even, even before uh, mm-hmm. I'd gone out there. And I l- remember looking up at the wall and there's a picture of David with Wes Montgomery, <laughs> you know, from... They grew up together in uh, India in, in Indianapolis. Wow! And I said, "This this is uh, it's just uh, unbelievable how this all works out." So that's kind of how I got into that. And then uh, there's a, a local college called Montclair State University mm-hmm. that has a small jazz program here, uh, a half hour, forty five minutes from my house. Um, and I started there. So you know, I started to get the experience of uh, from the workshop, the, the summer workshops, and my book, and. Uh, um, Sorry, this, Sonny Rollins. Do you ever heard of him? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I've never. I don't know who that is. It might be a good gig. I don't know. I just take it. <laughs> I told you not to call me Sonny. Uh, <laughs> um, so that's kind of how I, I I got into the teaching thing. And the question uh, that you asked me, Will, was um, it's a pos- It's been a positive thing. I mean, I. 
you know, everybody has to do it on their own, right? We know that. Mm-hmm. It's This is an inside job. And uh, all you can try to do is steer them or give them some ideas. And I remember, like, studying with Billy Rogers would, you know, would involve uh, playing together and me going and him just ripping like Benson, you know, and like, and me going, what was that? You mean this or this, you know, and, and you know, just yeah. no, nothing taped, you mm-hmm. know, nothing. Uh, you'd walk out, of, you'd walk away and you'd just be like, what just happened? <laughs> so anyway, you, you know, like you, playing with people or, or whatever, you, you learn not only sometimes what to do, but what also not to do, what things like, like when you were playing with McDuff or something, you learn that when you have a band, you know, you want everybody to know what's happening, you know, how much yeah. the gig pays, where you're staying, uh, you know. Yeah. You don't want to ever have that feeling that you had, you know. So it wasn't all positive, you know. It was, uh, you learn both ways. So, um, and the same thing when, you know, I was trying to learn how to play. Um, so I, I try to just help basically how, uh, you know, how we can get that person, that, that student to to get to where we we are where we love this music man you know yeah right it's yeah. like maintaining that that core love of music which is what we all start with and then kind of more things get tacked on over the years you know um but but like just finding whatever their joy is how you know if it's solely in jazz or or on a peripheral of it etc yeah i mean it's it's that's it it's you have to um if you don't love this music and and really love it, I mean, it, it, you should do something else. But you know, you can also you can also play music and do something else to make a living. And mm-hmm. and now that uh, you know things have changed a lot uh, with the music business and is, the, the way to make money is not uh, really available anymore as far as selling records. And it was uh, became more about you know doing gigs and touring and stuff. And now that's kind of on hold. So. It's uh, it, you really have to, even more now have to love the music and just want to hey. But the thing is, is we're so lucky in a way to have an outlet, whether you know, a creative outlet, man. whether it's music or, you know, my son is into filmmaking. My other son out in L.A. is is uh, into writing. Uh, some people are um, poets or you know dancers. What if you it's to have a creative outlet, no matter what you do with your life, is 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 a gift and mm-hmm. um so i think what we're doing when we teach is uh, is a noble thing and you know it's, it's it's spreading positivity in the world hopefully well that's man that's beautiful. so inspiring chatting with you about all that and you know thanks thanks for bringing all that good energy Speaking yeah. of uh, inspiring music, can we play another track from an album of yours? Uh, this is Eight Track, Volume Three. I'd love to play uh, a snippet of a take off this one. This this is a really great album, like many of your others. Uh, I remember hearing about this album because I was it was on the jazz charts for like six weeks. I think you were at number one, uh, which is really exciting. Uh, let's let's take a quick listen to this. This is a clip from. Uh, Eight track volume three. This is Move On Up. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, Dave. So killing, man. Thank you. Thank you. You have this, this great combination of uh, just burning lines, really cool phrasing, all tied together with this sort of tradition of the blues in your playing. It's, it's a wonderful combination to hear, man. And at the I'm feel, right, like right. You're, you're talking about, the feel is always laid back right in the pocket. And I know it comes from your, from your years of experience playing tons of gigs. And you know, we were talking a little bit about that and just the economics of everything and trying to make a living, uh, especially in New York, can be hard. And you know, I really admire guys like yourself that have made a living on their instrument, uh, primarily playing and, and now teaching. And one of the things that, that we share is uh, a gig called The Bateau in New York, which has been going on for a long time. And it's one of those gigs that, man, it's steady. And it's really helped me make a living out here in New York through, through playing the guitar. Uh, I've been very grateful for that gig. And I, I wanted just to ask you kind of about the years you did that gig, what years they were, and sort of some of your experiences uh, on that boat, because it's it's kind of wild at times, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I, he's talking about this boat that goes around Manhattan uh, and does a dinner cruise every night um, with a, a, a pianist and a, and a singer. And a um, bassist, yeah. And a bassist, and... Um, and uh, they're really nice people. So it, um, th- I didn't do it very long, actually. Um, it, it was just like a, like a lot of gigs. You know, you as a musician, you, uh, so you just you do what whatever gigs you can do. It's a good, to, yeah, uh, it's to a, make the rent, make the make the bills. And I, I mean, the thing, the nice thing about that gig was that it was, uh, you know, standards. So anytime you get to play standards, and uh, I think the, the first set was maybe some more pop stuff or whatever, yeah. but. But basically, you know, playing tunes and standards, um, you know, there's there's worse ways of making money, and I've and I've done those too. Uh, <laughs> as as we've been in New York, I've done uh, you know, uh, I've done believe it or not, uh, like construction type jobs and stuff. As I've been here long, many years now, uh, at in the leaner times, but also just to uh, you know, with two sons and and you know, always having to make some money. That's what you do. You do what you got to do. But that, yeah, that so I mean I've done uh, I remember I've done plenty of wet, there used to be a, a whole wedding thing you know you would do weddings and mm-hmm. uh, same thing you would you know a lot of times it would be uh, standards you know you play play tunes and so it's there's it's not so bad I remember when I was in uh, did a few in L A they were, they called them casuals right casuals. oh yeah oh yeah, yeah. they still do <laughs> we still call them casual gigs when I was on them they sometimes they were casualties but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, but it's um, yeah. It was uh, you playing our instrument. It's there's no, there's no shame in 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 you know whatever you got to do to make a living. And uh, times change. You know the the studio scene. I'm sure is probably in L.A. is not like it was. Now it's one guy with mm-hmm. a and a laptop. You know uh, can do a lot of things. So. Uh, and, and, and Perry, you talked about the importance of making records. I, I agree with that. It's still, it still is important. And, and I, and if you, you know, that's, that should be a goal for all of us because you want to put your music out there and, and just do it. Um, if you've got to save money doing something else to, to finance a thing, you know, you get, get the players that you want to use write the music and, and, uh, and keep putting good music out there. And people, people listen, like, you know, um, John was saying, you know, I, yeah. he, he's pieing my records out there, the steeplechase records, you know, that, yeah, makes yeah. Feel, that makes me feel good. That means people were like listening to this stuff. Oh yeah. But you know, it, that's so, you know, you just, just keep, keep 
moving ahead and, and uh, even though now, you know, like I've got one record in the can right now that's uh, uh, with the organ trio with uh, Walter Smith III on, uh, mm-hmm. on tenor. And yeah. I'm wondering, is that, is, am I going to put that out on CD too? Um, the, th- the thing is, is uh, radio stations still want CDs. I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I they know. haven't switched over to digital. So even in this time, um, and a lot of, uh, I still sell them on, on certain gigs. You can still sell them yeah. because a, a, a little bit older audience will still, will still buy a CD because they want to support the artist, get you to sign it. And, oh, yeah. And that yeah. Kind of thing. That still exists. So, um, uh, you know, they're still here. They're, they're, I don't know how much longer they'll, they'll be around, but uh, that's why I brought the 8-track back because I wanted to really bring back a crummy technology. Yeah. That's a great uh, sounding record. It really is. And thank you. I, I, that 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 whole project was, you know, it, it's it was it's turned out to be great. Because here's the thing, even from the earliest days in Omaha, when I was learning from Bobby Thompson, he would show he would play tunes like "Call Me." You ever heard? You know that one? Mm-hmm. Da, da, Call da, me. Da, da. It's like it's yeah. like the same changes as Green Dolphin Street, yeah. and, or like "Never Can Say Goodbye." Same thing. Yeah. Green yeah. Dolphin yeah. Street. Um, these two, Sunshine of My Love, one of the first tunes with Jack. So, you know, it's always been a thing where you can play a tune that people recognize the melody. You're going to bring them in. If yeah. you go do a, a, like some dumb gig, whatever, you're playing in a, in a, in a bar, cocktail hour or something, and you play Girl from Ipanema or Misty, somebody's going to come up and say, man, I really enjoyed that version of Girl from Ipanema and Misty because they are making a connection. They know right. that song, and, right. and it, it's a communication thing. So with the A-track thing, I was, even with McDuff, he would play a pop tune once in a while. Uh, Stanley went, you know, did a whole record of Stevie Wonder music when I was in the band. Um, so I would always, on my little gigs, I would say, okay, we're going to do, the next song we're going to do is going to, uh, I would do like, Close to You by the Carpenters, which is a great tune. Yeah, yeah. I would say, I would say that's going to be on my next record. Dave plays the hits of the eight track, and people would laugh. And then, uh, then people started come up and saying, "Hey, when's that eight track record coming out?" And this little light bulb went off, and I said, "Oh shit, man, I got to go make this record." You know? <laughs> and my wife was in on it too. She she's very much, uh, uh, you know, she she calls, she coins it people music. Yeah, like mm-hmm. like when we start playing too hip, you know. Nobody wants to hear that stuff. Yeah, well, it's good. I mean, I'm not, you got to figure out a way to, to mix that into your thing. But but you want the main thing is if you're playing a gig, you want people to have a good time and enjoy what you're doing. So so you know that's I said. Let me go ahead and make this eight track project before somebody steals that idea, man. Yeah, so, it's an it's an added benefit when your wife likes the music. You know. Well, I, I have we could talk to you for hours, Dave, but I, I really want to respect your time. But I just want you to know we really admire your playing and your career. You've been a working guy, and you've also combined that with putting out 30 records of your own and having such a strong artistic presence. And uh, that's just something that we really admire, and it's in line with how we're developing our careers. So uh, it's, it's really been a pleasure to have you here on High Action. I you, wish- made my, you made my week. <laughs> Coming from you guys, I mean, it's, it means a lot. You know, I really appreciate it, guys. Yeah, well, yeah. It, the pleasure is ours. And, and I hope you're well and, and you stay safe during these crazy times and just, uh, you know, focus on your music and your family and everything. So, right uh, on. You, you know, keep it, just keep, uh, keep playing music. And, and that's a positive thing. Yeah. As, as weird as things get in, in this country, um, just, you know, we we're, have that, we're, we ha- we're lucky we have that. Uh, 
gift to be able to play music. We and do, and, and we keep working on it. Just keep working on it. And a great community of guitar players to help inspire us and, and support us along the way. So right on. All right, yeah, buddy. Dave. Thanks, Dave. You're the All man. Right. Take care. Thanks, bye man. Bye. See you later. Now. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.